Mark your calendar for October the 6th, 2022 from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific. The Center for Diabetes and Mental Health is hosting the second annual virtual event called Reimagine T1D. This two-hour interactive event will feature engaging speakers who will give you actionable strategies to live the life that you want, even with, or even especially with, T1D. The best part is, this event is absolutely free. Register now by going to www.reimagined1d.com. That's www.reimagined1d.com. If you can't make it live on October the 6th from 4.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Pacific, a replay will be available to everyone who registers. Register for free right now at www.reimagined1d.com. And I can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, and I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. This episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast is brought to you by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Hey there, welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. On this episode, we have a very special guest. My guest today is Dave Walton. Dave is the CEO of the T1D Exchange. You may have seen information about the T1D Exchange on social media or in the diabetes news, but in this episode, we have the opportunity to talk to Dave and dive in to find out exactly what the T1D Exchange is all about. They do some awesome work, from giving our doctors the tools they need to use best practices in their work, to connecting people with type 1 diabetes to research studies that they can participate in and play an active role in advancing treatments for people with type 1 diabetes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and hearing more about T1D Exchange. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me. Looking forward to, to our discussion. To start off, Please introduce yourself and let people know about who you are and also your your world type one diabetes. Yeah, so I uh, was diagnosed in uh, January of '96 uh, after one semester of business school and healthcare management. Um, I've always worked in healthcare, and after a few years, and actually my initial project at work being something that involved trying to operationalize for a pharmaceutical company. After the DCCT results had come out, I think in 93, that's right when I graduated college. And it just kind of, it was the first project. I sat and listened to patients with diabetes talk about it and what the symptoms were of type one versus type you know, two and how that often presented. And um, a couple of years later, I had these symptoms of going to the bathroom 20 times a day. I, I lost 20 pounds. I couldn't quench my thirst. And so I went into Penn Student Health and said, hey, I think I might have type one diabetes. So uh, sure enough, you know, I had a blood sugar of around 600 and, and we were off to the races. Uh, so 
still continued to work in healthcare, had an interest in maybe working in diabetes. It didn't pop up right away, but after joining uh, Johnson and Johnson and working there for five years on the pharmaceutical side, they acquired uh, Animus, the insulin pump company. And so that was the first time I really uh, got involved in a professional way in type one. I mean, I had helped with JDRF walks at work and things of that nature, but I hadn't actually worked, you know, kind of full-time in the diabetes space. And once I started that in 2006, um, you know, I, I just absolutely loved it and felt there was a lot I could contribute and gave me a perspective to bring to the table. But, you know, I focused on all the functional skills I needed to build as well. And just, it's been a, um, a very rewarding experience to be involved over the last, you know, 16 years. Yeah. So like me, you're, you're involved both personally and professionally. You live diabetes at home, and then you also work to improve the lives of people with diabetes, um, you know, worldwide. And it must be really fulfilling for you. No, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and from a personal perspective, you know, I, like many people didn't have, you know, 10 friends with type one diabetes. I, uh, knew a girl growing up in school and then, um, got to know uh, a friend later in my adult life, uh, you know, who had type one and she actually, um, was involved in kind of talking to me about getting on an insulin pump. And, uh, and then I joined, you know, this animus and there were, uh, you know, dozens of people with type one working there. And I, I really learned a, learned a lot from that, from peers about real world, real life situations. And that really kind of interested me about, uh, not just for my own personal you know, benefit, but also um, just how much you can learn from the experiences of other. And if they're, you know, we as an organization certainly take that stance and try to harness a lot of that real world information into things that can be productive for people and uh, make it a little easier to live with. Um, but, you know, I also happen to have a nephew who has type one, you know, he's a teenager now, uh, but, you know, I was 20, four when I was diagnosed, he was three and a half. So we kind of span, you know, the averages together. We're not that far off from, you know, the, the, the average in the, in the U S anyway, but uh, you know, it's nice to be able to be involved and have kind of a relationship with my sister about, you know, that, that type of um, uh, you know, kind of the way that they face things. And, and if there are anything I can learn from what I do at work to maybe help out, but they're, they're pretty, they're pretty connected and self-sufficient. So um, uh, it's, uh, but that's been interesting as well. I was diagnosed in 99 and I was 21. So similar times, similar ages for the both of us. And I feel like being diagnosed as a young adult at that time was a big challenge because there was no community. You know, we had JDRF and things happening for the kids. There were, there was no internet or no social media at least. And so no yeah. way to, no way to connect. And so I don't know about you, but I felt all alone for a long time after I was diagnosed because I didn't know anybody with type one and I had no way of connecting with anybody else who had type one. There was just no easy way to do it. Yeah, it was definitely much, much more challenging in the early years. And I think back to some of the, the things that I was doing that just now I look back and think, wow. Uh, and as a Californian, you'll appreciate this. You know, I lived in San Francisco uh, from 97 to 2001 and you know, my wife and I would go to Jamba Juice and I'd get the Orange Oasis, the large size, which was like 90 some grams of carbs that had like the, you know, the highest glycemic index you can have. And then I would top it off with a Noah's bagel with cream cheese. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what was I doing? Um, every weekend, I think we, you know, that was kind of the, the fair, but 
I didn't test after meals. And at that time, you know, it was all finger sticks and, uh, yeah, my blood sugar just wasn't in great control. You know, I'll tell you. So I did have, you know, again, through my, uh, a friend through my wife initially that, uh, you know, I could bounce some things off of, but that was really it. I didn't have, you know, a group of people or, or even good information sources to go, uh, go try to find out compared to what is out there now, the availability of these great resources with, you know, children with diabetes and beyond type one and JDRF and college diabetes network. And just, you know, all, all kinds of organizations that really help with different aspects of the community. And then all the social media out there. And we work with a lot of people who help provide information to others, post content, um, share their stories. Uh, you know, there's just a lot, um, a lot out there that that can be done and um, even podcasts, you know, you've got your podcast and juice box podcast and, you know, um, just a number of, of ways that you can get connected to information and real world tips um, that really are helpful to make it just a lot less, uh, a lot less hassle than would be otherwise if you were just doing everything by yourself. Do you remember what the biggest takeaway for you was starting to work at Animus and being around other people with diabetes, both as coworkers as well as as patients and clients? Absolutely. Well, so interestingly, the first thing I learned my first week of work uh, was that there were ways that you could determine what stand, what maybe what a dosing factor might be for yourself, right? So I realized just doing some simple formulas, the rule of 1800, the rule of 500 as just starting points that I was on the wrong dosing for, you know, 10 years. Um, and I had good care. I mean, a good endocrinologist, good health insurance. And I was sitting here, you know, on a one unit for every uh, 15 grams of carbs and then one unit to correct 25 milligrams per deciliter. And that, as I, read about these formulas and looked at some of the studies trying to come up to speed. I, you know, with pumps and bolus calculators and the like, I realized, wow, I'm, this is, this isn't right. And I just literally changed my pump settings on the spot the Thursday of the week I started at Animus and my next endo appointment, I came in and my A1C for the first time was, it was six, nine is the first time I cracked below 7%. And I was very happy about it and very annoyed that it took me by chance reading a PowerPoint during my orientation to see these rules and think, how is this not cost sooner? So I talk, you know, then I would ask people, what are you on? What are you on? And I'd look at their weight and I just try to figure out like, well, I wonder what the range is. And um, it, it just, it really was striking that, wow, I have all these other benefits and things around me and I still was on the wrong one. And I was underdosing for food and overcorrecting afterwards. So like you can imagine with someone who doesn't have access to those things is, you know, the guesswork that's going on and just trial and error and trying to figure things out, how frustrating that might be. So that that was definitely a big aha moment early on. Um, you know, and then there was wearing a pump and how you do it in different situations. And that's where my fr you know, friends who played basketball talked about how they did it. And do they disconnect or do they wear spandex or do they um, take little mini boluses in between games? Like, how do you how do you manage certain exercise situations. And that, that was helpful too. Talk about dosing. And I think that's so important because talk about diabetes and mental health, people think about everything other than diabetes management, but the reality is, is the diabetes management is the 
fundamental piece of your mental health because if you feel out of control and like you're, you can't, no matter what you do, your blood sugars aren't going to do what you want them to do. Then you're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel overwhelmed, burnt out. If you get your diabetes management in under control, or at least to the best of your ability, that's not going to take all your problems away mentally, but it's going to make things a whole lot easier to deal with as you move forward. I think that your story it really illustrates that. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you look at different personality types and I'm, you know, I, there are certain things I like to be uh, kind of organized or in control about. And then there are others I'm totally spontaneous. And, you know, my wife would say I'm definitely not in a lot of respects. Um, but, you know, when I got diagnosed and this was happening, I thought, well, I need to track my blood sugars. And I, you know, there weren't, we didn't have these tools then. So I, I created an Excel spreadsheet with moving averages over a period of time. And I was like, wow, this isn't so hard. My early blood sugars weren't, you know, I was still in my honeymoon phase. And then towards the, that, that spreadsheet started getting worse and worse. And I realized, wow. And my friends were telling me, yeah, you're probably getting to the end of your honeymoon. And then, you know, and then I realized, okay, um, this is a little, little harder than I thought. And again, this is when I, I was on my path of being on the wrong dosing for so long. And, and so it definitely, I wasn't doing really poorly. My A1Cs were in the mid sevens to low eights probably, but I, I never could get it below that. And I, that, that was a little frustrating. I, I was busy with other parts of life, so I didn't really prioritize it. So, you know, having a kid for the first time, moving, buying a house. But then when I joined Animus and then had all these other people that had A1Cs that were lower and they they were talking about, you know, these advanced techniques. And I, then I realized I got a little, you know, frustrated. Like, I need to, I need to figure this out. Like, and, you know, it, it happened pretty quickly with when I got my first A1C back that, that, the dosing was definitely part of it. And I was, you know, I noticed it short term with my blood sugars being better, but then finally getting an A1C, you know, it, it was important to me. It was a little bit like a scorecard and I, you know, I wanted to do well. I didn't like to not be able to do something the way you're supposed to. So. Well, talking about scorecards is a nice transition to your work now at the T1D exchange. So give us a little overview about what the T1D exchange is and what your mission is and how you work with patients and organizations in the diabetes world. Yeah, no, it, you know, we have gone through a little bit of a transformation the last several years. And, um, you know, we really do kind of work in this intersection of uh, healthcare providers who take care of people with diabetes, people with diabetes or their caregivers themselves directly. Um, companies that make products for people with type one and other organizations that, that exist to, you know, kind of serve people with type one or help in some, some form or fashion, you know, a number that are other not profits like we are, but we, we, the two big things are around real, it's kind of real world evidence and trying to gather data and conduct various forms of research to help inform the, the community. And in some cases generate evidence, you know, from that, that can be spread amongst other providers and, and throughout. Um, but we also, you know, try to work on actually improving the quality of care, working with these diabetes centers and a lot of great people that um, are either endocrinologists or support staff or quality improvement professionals. And, you know, we've got 50 diabetes centers around the U.S. that we work with now. And we gather kind of you know, anonymous or non-identifiable data from the centers on everybody who is seen at these big diabetes centers. So we have almost 75,000 patients 
uh, or people with diabetes who are being seen at these 50 diabetes centers. And we get a lot of that electronic medical record data, and we're able to look at how are they doing with A1Cs and with CGM usage and with depression screening and pump usage and people bolusing three times a day or more and a number of metrics and things that we focus on by working collaboratively with these centers. So there's a lot that's come out of that. We had 16 publications last year. We'll probably have 20 this year. Um, But that part of working with the providers documenting kind of what's happening at the population level, let's say population health, but then helping to coach or provide benchmarking information or uh, case studies of how one center did something really well and try to spread that out to the others. That's a big part of what we're we're doing. Um, But then there's working directly with uh, people with diabetes and we have the self-reported registry that uh, it's basically you, uh, you agree to be a part of research. And so this registry is a longitudinal study, but it's really answering questionnaires, to be uh, frank. It's not doesn't need to be anything more than some number of minutes, you know, answering questionnaires. And one is a baseline when you start and then an annual update um, from there on. But we all will send different research opportunities to people. Um, But we have 19,000 people that have, uh, you know, agreed to join the registry and then I don't know, over 15,000 of them have kind of fully answered our questionnaire. You know, some of them have linked their CGM data to it. So we, we get all this information and we we conduct to some basic analysis and and um, on that. But then we can go do deep dives on, on topics from that because we know we have 4,300 people who use this product or this many people who reported having this other condition. Um, and so there are a lot of a lot of things that we can do with that. And what we can recruit people into research, other research, um, knowing their kind of baseline information. So that's something that we've gotten a lot more active in. We work with companies directly. We work with uh, CR, uh, research organizations, the diabetes centers, et cetera, to get people into research. That's amazing. What is an example of something you guys have done a deep dive in from the registry data. Yeah. So as an example, um, and, and, you know, we've had some, uh, uh, you know, presentations on this at, at uh, conferences and, and publications that um, we looked at, we look a lot at hypoglycemia um, uh, from a number of different angles, severe hypoglycemia uh, and impaired hypoglycemia awareness is certainly one of them. Um, so, you know, we we have done work with Vertex where we've uh, basically looked at CGM data of people in our registry who have volunteered to share their data with us. And then we've conducted a survey that really, you know, dove into the topic of how often was this happening? You know, what was there assistance? What were some of the, the things associated like the experience around that that, that occurred? really trying to contextualize what this is like and how often this is happening to people and 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 then look at their at the data and kind of combine the two to get this you know more comprehensive view you know of it and you know we also happen to recruit people into the clinical study that vertex has for vx880 to that will you know is looking at people with this kind of impaired hypo awareness um and and having you know, severe hypo events throughout the year. 
And, um, you know, it's funny because we can look at it there reported and look at data. And then we can also take a look at it with the EMR data that we collect to see what happens there. But, you know, you realize that different data sources capture a different percentage of the information that actually happens. And when it comes, you know, to having a severe hypoglycemia event, it, it may be more accurate to go directly to somebody and ask them because they may have gotten assistance somewhere that doesn't get captured in the, the EMR. Uh, we do capture some of it, uh, for sure. We have it in, in there. If someone went to the ER or if they made it, if they specifically talked about it with their provider, it may be entered into the, the medical record. But there could be other times where it wasn't and a family member had to give glucagon to somebody and it's not not uh, recorded uh, necessarily in in an uh, in EMR. So that's one that really we, was a, a very uh, comprehensive and productive project. I want to talk a little bit more about clinical trials and your role there and how people can get involved in clinical trials if they want to, um, as well as what are the benefits for people who are interested in um, being part of clinical trials for, for, for diabetes treatments and technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'll be honest, I didn't have an appreciation for this prior to joining T1D Exchange. I mean, I, I joined on the board in 2018 and then became full, uh, became the interim and then full-time CEO in 2019. And just understanding the whole research landscape, the pace that research is conducted at, how challenging it can be at times for companies to find people that meet the criteria to, to join the studies. Um, so it's it's pretty, I would, I would say it's an interesting topic in that it's very rewarding that we can help accelerate uh, getting people into research. And I'll talk about that in a sec. But it's also frustrating because we're barely involved when you look at all the research that goes on. We've got not only the 19,000 people in our registry, we also have this other online community that people uh, follow like news articles and a question of the day from us. And we have 30,000 email addresses there. And the majority, not all, but the majority of them are people with type one or the, or a caregiver. And so I, I am... 100% willing to bet that I can help accelerate uh, any study recruiting people with type 1. I I'm actually, uh, it's something that we're trying to get much more awareness about that I'm hearing about these studies that take a year, two years, somebody can't find enough pediatric type 1 patients to be able to do this. And we have people all across the country that we could send to sites, to clinical centers to participate in, in a study. And we do some of that, and we have people that that contract with us to do it. But it's just a, it's it's the tip of the iceberg. And so we've spoken to some people and said, just you know, let us help. We have people in our that want to help. They just don't know how. It's like you know, you, it's not that easy to find all the the possibilities. And some of them are what center near you or where you get your care. Um, it's not easy to find that, particularly if you're not going to that center yourself. And that's where a lot of the people are recruited from for some of these clinical studies, particularly for products that are going to go to the FDA. And, um, you know, there's kind of this conservative approach that's taken. Uh, we're talking to a lot of companies and we've helped a number. We've helped a company with a novel biologic for newly diagnosed. You know, we've helped um, Vertex recruit, you know, for their study. You know, we have we've helped with, um, you know, new adhesives for CGM sensors and all kinds of things that that come out. Um, 
And there's a, so much more we could do. So that's you know definitely a big a big push for us. And the benefit to the individuals doing it is you get you get actually access to some of the most innovative treatments out there. You know, we have someone who works for us who you know participated in the the Omnipod you know automated system AID system, and she got to you know see the benefits of that product for her you know before it was approved, um, and. Yeah, there are aspects that you should read about and take seriously and talk to talk to somebody about participating in the study. But a lot of these studies, um, you know, are dealing with you know pretty safe products. It's a matter of kind of demonstrating the efficacy and the, getting that access uh, to to treatments that can be really game changing is is definitely one of the benefits. And certainly, you help move things faster, and you can be a part of not letting this, you know, a process take longer than it should. We can speed up the whole aspect of clinical research if we better matched all the opportunities with the people who might be interested or motivated to do it. And I know there are other people that think that way and JDRF tries to do that with one of their solutions. And, you know, we're talking to them how we can help work with them uh, mutually to, to we, we have the same goals. So that's something that I'm very uh, much looking forward to. I think not only are people going to benefit themselves from participating in clinical trials and getting early access to these technologies, but they also benefit the community. And by moving these things ahead, people with diabetes so often feel helpless and they feel like they want to do something to help the community, help other people, but they don't know how. And I think that clinical trials are a really tangible way to be able to use your condition um, to advance and help other people who have diabetes just like you. Absolutely. And, you know, we're doing some work now in this whole area of uh, screening people who may be at elevated risk for developing type one. Mm -hmm. So um, siblings, family member, you know, and it's really more of a market research project doing focus groups and surveys, both with people with diabetes or their or their siblings in one case, or with providers who, who treat people. And you know, the the kind of historical experience of trial net and the work that's been done um, has taken a long time. It's generated some very interesting findings. And I think, you know, there are products now that may come to market soon, even maybe the end of this year. Uh, and then other research that helped advance the cause, or, you know, we've learned a lot more about things that work, things that don't. But there are a lot of people that have no idea how easily you could participate in uh, getting a blood sample screened uh, to see if there are autoantibodies in there that then could you could actually become eligible for a study that might delay the onset of, of type one for a child or a sibling or what have you. Um, so I, as someone who's worked in the industry for over 15 years, you know, I've got two kids that weren't screened and I f- happen to find out there was a home kit you could use with TrialNet. So I, uh, two years ago, so we, two and a half years ago. So we did it uh, just for my daughter who was home. And, uh, you know, thankfully there were no autoantibodies, um, but getting the word out to everyone and getting people who would be willing to do it in, making it easier for people to participate. Like that's something that there's still a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, we want to try and do our part to help with that. So if someone wants to participate in a clinical trial, how can they work with T1D Exchange to get in the door and to make themselves available? Absolutely. So I'd say 
Um, two things that one, you know, joining our registry, uh, which is you know, t1dexchange.org slash registry or t1dregistry.org. We've got two ways, yeah, depending on people search and what they can remember. Um, by joining that and filling out a 15 minute questionnaire, you can then sit back and let us do the work and send you the emails and you can ignore everyone if nothing is uh, of interest to you. But you know, something might come through and it literally could be something that's not hardcore clinical research. It might be somebody who's developing a product wants to understand a certain aspect of something first. So they want to survey people and understand how often does this happen? How do you feel about this? And how big of a, how big of a improvement would this be if we could do this? Those types of things also are helpful to move a product along, but then there's the actual clinical evaluation and participating in those. So Joining our registry is one. We also have, again, this online community that literally is just your email address. Uh, and we often send things through there too to people who you know may not be sure if they want to take 15 minutes to fill out a survey. So, hey, just we'll, we'll send you information. So being connected to T1D Exchange and getting information from us, we'll do the work. We, we are working with others and we're talking to JDRF about how we can maximize what each other does there. But we're talking to a lot of the companies. We're talking to centers. We have centers that come to us and say, hey, we're having a slow recruit with this virtual care study we're doing. Can you get this out to some type ones who live here, are this old, blah, blah, blah. So we provide that um, and we connect. And, and then the people are, you know, that participate are often, you know, uh, you know, kind of feel very pleased that. They didn't have to go hunt for this and look at like clinicaltrials.gov and figure out who's still recruiting and who the you know, it, it's not always easy to figure out for for somebody who's not working in the healthcare space or in the research field. So let's make it easy to do the right thing. And that's something that you know we try to do. And we'll make sure that we have all the links to those sites to in the show notes of this episode. So if you want to participate or get involved with QD Exchange, you can go to the show notes and check those out. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome hearing about clinical trials and hearing about T1D Exchange and how people can get involved and empower themselves and other people in our lives with type 1 diabetes. So thank you. Yeah. Well, no, Mark, thank you. And and maybe just one last plug I'd say, since uh, you and I talked about this in another uh, forum about some of the mental health work that we've done in diabetes, yeah. there are a lot of things around fear of hypoglycemia, diabetes distress, and um We've been able to, you know, we're still working on some of these um, these things, but it's definitely a big part of what we do. We have PhDs in psychology who work, you know, for us and and kind of lead those efforts. So, you know, that's another another aspect of the whole diabetes uh, experience that we're also trying to provide some insights on and try to make it a little more manageable for people with type one. So, um, you know, and your your book is a is a good one that a number of us have uh, read through. So, uh, but certainly it, it's something that we take seriously and know that it does, it it plays a big part in a number of people's lives. So um. absolutely. That does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, share it with a friend, put a link in a text message or to email and send it to a friend to let them know how much they could benefit from this podcast. When you share these episodes with your friends, that helps me get the word out about this podcast so more people with type 1 diabetes can benefit. I love hearing from my listeners, so please feel free to send me an email to mark at the diabetespsychologist.com 
or DM me on Instagram at the Diabetes Psychologist. And of course, be sure to tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Remember, type 1 diabetes is not easy, but you can have an easier time with it. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com and be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman, and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. Podcast.